The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk, of course, about the impeachment trial in the Senate and also about sports. As we prepare for the Super Bowl on Sunday, legendary sports writer Robert Lipsite will talk about the connections between football and Donald Trump. Plus, the Border Patrol, it turns out, has a youth group. Border Patrol Explorers, an extension of the Boy Scouts. Morley Music went to the Arizona border to find out about Border Patrol Explorers. We'll speak with him later in the show. But first, the Senate impeachment trial. For that, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and a political analyst on CNN. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Glad to be with you. We should note that we are recording this on Tuesday afternoon after the president's legal team has concluded its opening arguments and before senators submit questions on Wednesday afternoon. My first question for you, the president's lawyers criticized the House impeachment case because the Democrats don't have a single witness who testified about direct knowledge of Trump's actions. Why don't they have a single witness who had direct knowledge of Trump's actions? Is there a way they could get a witness? Why, yes. You have a great mind. There is. They could call witnesses. Well, you know, they could possibly have to fight Trump in court. But as I argued in a piece this week, when it comes to the revelations in former National Security Advisor, John Bolton's forthcoming book. It's coming out in March. We're not talking about something that's happening next year. They can call him, and I don't think Trump can stop him. A claim of executive privilege doesn't extend to Bolton. Bolton no longer works there. I mean, he can claim anything he wants, and as we know, he does. But I don't know that that he would have a legal leg to stand on. And, And as several people have said, including Adam Schiff, a subpoena from a bipartisan group of senators signed by the chief justice, even if they wind up going to court, it has a lot more power than than the House subpoenas did. Not officially, not legally, but it just would. So I felt that they have been making an excellent case, but it's the Democrats' case. Call witnesses. If If you think this testimony is mainly hearsay, it isn't all hearsay, but whatever. Well, call direct witnesses. The only one of the Trump legal defense who referred to the Bolton testimony in the presentations was Alan Dershowitz, who said that even if what Bolton said about Trump is true, it's not impeachable. And here's his argument. He said, if hypothetically a Democratic president told Israel that foreign aid authorized by Congress wouldn't be sent unless Israelis stop building settlements on the West Bank, That would be a quid pro quo, but it would not be an impeachable abuse of power because Professor Dershowitz, as they call him, said, that's the way foreign policy has been operated by presidents since the beginning of time. Do you find this analogy a convincing one? Not one bit. Professor Dershowitz, I think, has lost a step here defending too many evil people. I don't know what that does to your brain, but I mean, that's preposterous. First of all, you know, the other lawyers have brought up other times in history when Republicans and Democrats have uh, held up aid for various reasons. But A, they always make it public, and B, the reasons are always genuinely related to the national interest. It's not 
can you get some dirt on my opponents and can you research a wackadoodle theory that Ukraine tried to help Hillary Clinton. So the fact that, that Dershowitz could say that with a straight face, I mean, I, I was shocked. It was, it was brazen even for him. It, these things are not analogous. Jay Sekulow, the president's lead attorney, in his summary on Tuesday morning said, this is about policy differences. It's a dispute over a hold on foreign aid, and that should not be an impeachable offense. What do you think about that argument? I have the same answer. You know, if, if Trump didn't want them to get military aid, he could have fought it. He supported it, supported it for many months. Uh, and as a, as a policy decision, it was a bipartisan policy decision. I'm not fond of it. I don't think we should be putting more lethal aid out in the world. But it was done. And, and again, if he had a policy reason... He would have come to Congress. He would have gone to the media. We might not have liked his reason, but, you know, whatever it might have been, maybe he had second thoughts. There's too much lethal aid over there already. I don't think we should be sending weapons of death. That would be great. The nation would support him. But that's not what he did. That's not what he said. He did not go public with it. He did not consult Congress. He tried to keep it a secret as long as, as, long as he could. And we know every shred of evidence is that he was looking for dirt on on political opponents. And I think it was Saturday when they did their their opening. They kept on arguing that that Trump held up the aid because he was opposed to corruption in, in Ukraine and that that was a valid excuse. Well, first of all, there's no evidence that he wants to fight corruption. He actually wants to get rid of the Foreign Practices Act that keeps our businesses from bribing overseas governments. He thinks that puts them at, at, at a real competitive disadvantage. So he is Mr. Corruption. But the other part of it that was so crazy to me, John, is that the people that Trump was identifying as corrupt were the reformers, and the people that he was identifying as the good guys were corrupt. And we're palling around with Rudy Giuliani and probably trying to make deals, you know, around natural gas and other energy resources. So there's no evidence that he wants to fight corruption. But even in this case where he uses the word corruption, he's not fighting corruption. He's abetting corruption. The Senate Republicans facing a pressure around calling John Bolton say they might make a deal if they could call Hunter Biden as their witness. But can't Republicans call Hunter Biden anytime they want? They have 53 votes. Why do they need a deal to call Hunter Biden? I think they know that, that, that to call Hunter Biden alone is a bridge too far even for them. It's hard for me to say that because there, we haven't really seen any, any evidence of anything being too far for them. But I think for them to just call Hunter Biden and refuse the Democrats, the House managers, any witnesses would, would be so brazen and so ugly that, that there would be a back, they fear, even, even Mitch McConnell, a backlash to that. There may well be horse trading around additional witnesses. And I think Hunter Biden is, is the most easily dismissed. He didn't do anything wrong. He wasn't in government. I, I, I could see making a deal. I don't, I'm not saying I like it, John. I'm not, I'm not backing it. I'm just putting it out there. Is this less bad than getting nobody? I'm not prepared to say I think that's a good deal, but I think it's worth thinking about. How's that for hedging? The Democrats need four Republican senators to vote in favor of letting John Bolton testify about what Trump told him. They seem to have two votes right now, Susan Collins of Maine and Mitt Romney of Utah. Where can they get two more? 
Well, Lisa Murkowski said uh, something somewhat encouraging today, and I have to say I tend to trust Murkowski even more than Collins. She's came out about against Kavanaugh. Uh, you know, she, she when she expresses concern, it, she acts on it more frequently than than Collins does. So she's she's a third. I'm not saying she's definite, but she you know she admitted that the Bolton the Bolton story made her even more open to witnesses. But she said, I'm not, we made a decision, we're not revisiting it until after the Senate cross-examines both sides, which will happen Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, and the fourth person that people think is a possibility, mainly because he makes the, some of the same noises as Murkowski, is Lamar Alexander. He's retiring, he's not a complete nutball, He's known to have some concerns about this president. I mean, they all do, but, you know, they suck, they suck it up. So those are the four. I mean, they, you know, there, there has been talk of others, but, for example, Joni Ernst has a real challenger in, in Iowa for her Senate seat. And she, at the very beginning of this process, she would materialize on lists of senators in swing states who have tough races uh, for, in 2020. But Joni Ernst did the most disgraceful thing last night. She got up and she smirked and she talked about how she's going back to Iowa and the Iowa Democrats are going to be caucusing on Monday and she can't wait to see if they really come out and support Vice President Biden after all this. Just with a big smile on her face, making clear what this is. Joe Biden's not my candidate, but he's not corrupt. And so she really, you know, she really went too far. Um, and I hope the people of Iowa saw it and were, were appalled. So she's not, despite what some, you know, optimists thought, she's not touch reachable. Uh, you know, Angus King, the great independent from Maine, he says he thinks there could be as many as 10, but he didn't name them because he's like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get my friends in trouble. Um, 10 Republicans. I can't, I can't do the math on that, but um, I, that seems wildly optimistic. Um, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it can't happen at this point. So the question becomes, if this keeps coming out, how terrible do these Republicans look, especially the vulnerable ones? If they vote no on witnesses, shut this thing down, and then, you know, Bolton's book drops, and it's got even more awful details, other, you know, other things come out. I think the House impeachment managers have played this really well. I think they've really backed these guys into a corner, and I think they're gonna, they, they will probably self-destruct, but we'll see. Last question. Uh, Jay Sekulow, in his summation of the case for the president, said, Put yourself in the shoes of the president. Let me ask Ew. you. To, let me ask Ew. you. <laughs> Do I have to? <laughs> Please. <laughs> Obviously, he says, you know, you would feel treated so unfairly. If you put yourself in the shoes of the president, where would you be right now? Uh, you know, I'd be a big self-pitying blob of corruption. I don't really, that just doesn't feel very good. But, you know, it's kind of a twist on what Adam Schiff did to close uh, at least one of the nights. I can't remember if it was the last night where he said, you know, put yourself in the shoes of, of Joe Biden or, or you know, any, any one of us when the president of the United States is asking a foreign power to investigate you, and by the very active investigation, regardless of what you find, besmirch your good name. You know, put yourself in the shoes of Marie Yovanovitch, 
who had a career, you know, and a reputation destroyed by these hoodlums. So, you know, it was very effective when Adam Schiff did it. The president deserves everything and more that is happening to him, much more. So I don't really know. I think most people reacted the way I did, like, ick, no, no, you can't pay me enough to do that. A big self-pitying blob of corruption. Joan Walsh on the president. Read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. I always enjoy it. Now it's time for sports talk. This Sunday is the Super Bowl, the biggest sports event in America. Something like 100 million people watch the Super Bowl these days. The Super Bowl and all of football is sort of like Donald Trump. Both of them provide mass entertainment that promotes tribalism and toxic masculinity while keeping violence in vogue. That's what Robert Lipsight says. He's the legendary sports writer for the New York Times who writes now for Tom Dispatch and The Nation. He was also a correspondent for CBS and NBC News. He won an Emmy for his work hosting WNET's nightly public affairs show. And his book, Sports World, an American Dreamland, has been reissued by Rutgers University Press with a new introduction. Last time we talked here, it was about Trump and golf. Bob Lipsight, welcome back. Glad to be here, John. Well, football is an entertainment where the audience, mostly white, watches young black men try to inflict traumatic brain injuries on each other. Is that a fair statement? Well, I think it's pretty harsh, John. (laughs) But yeah, you know, something really struck me the other day about all of this. And it just really clarified things for me. There was a story out of Marshall, Texas. A local doctor had persuaded the school board cancel tackle football for middle graders. A year or two later, local families got together and created their own version of the sport with local teams. Now, Marshall, Texas is one-third Hispanic, one-third white, one-third black. The kids who came to play in the newly constituted teams were 90% black. Mm. And it was generally felt that Hispanics and whites pushed their kids off to baseball and soccer to make up for the loss of football. But for black families, they still saw football as the ticket out of Marshall, Texas, as the opportunity to get a college scholarship and maybe even a shot at the NFL. And I was thinking, what's the difference between that and the, quote, all-volunteer army? Yeah. It's very skewed towards minorities, African-Americans, and others. It's the same thing Richard Reeves, wonderful political correspondent, once called the all-volunteer army the NFL with guns. I mean, this kind of juxtaposition of, of football and the all-volunteer army as kind of mercenary forces for people who don't feel they have other options really kind of is a very powerful statement. And, and I do think that football, maybe sports in general, but certainly football has has been a, a kind of almost, uh, you could say, canary in the, you know, in the minds for Trumpism. I mean, I, we, we understand that Trump did not create Trumpism, you know, that uh, 
other presidents and the Cold War in history did. But certainly it's coalesced now. You uh, wrote for Tom Dispatch and The Nation, quote, football groomed us for Trump. The number one item on your list is that football helped spread what you call America's primary disease, racism. Please explain that connection. Well, I, I think you know, the, the fact that the 70% of the players in the National Football League are African-American would you know, start to, to back that statement. But even beyond that, there are 32 teams. Only four head coaches were men of color, and there were two general managers who were men of color. And, of course, there are no African-American owners. There are two owners who are not white. One is Pakistani-American, one is Korean-American. Bill Roden, a, a colleague of mine at the Times, wonderful columnist who wrote a book about this called $40 Million Slaves, he wrote that the power relationship that's been established on the plantation has not changed, even if the circumstances around it have. Promoting racism goes along with crushing dissent, especially dissent from people of color, especially people like Colin Kaepernick. You know, kind of unfair, but you know, you got 70% African-Americans and the support for Colin Kaepernick, an African-American, who three years ago kneeled in protest to racism in America, particularly white cops shooting unarmed young black men. Colin Kaepernick has gotten very little support from his colleagues in the NFL. And I was thinking, you know, we're really quick now, justifiably, to trash the Republican senators who are so concerned about their of surviving, that uh, they would stand up to Trump. But we're really kind of afraid to apply any of this appropriation to, to, to black ball players. I was very struck in your piece that you also talked about another one of the ways that football prepared us for Trump is the way the game, in your words, normalizes brutality. Tell us about Richie Incognito. Oh, we love Richie Incognito. Uh, so, <laughs> Richie Incognito was an all-star offensive lineman at Nebraska, which is which is famous for uh, you know producing psychopathic uh, football players. And at Nebraska, he picked a lot of fights that could have uh, ended his career in in jail. Uh, but he was such a good player that Nebraska sent to the Manager Clinic for anger management counseling, which didn't work. And uh, I, I, I think that these kind of escapades only increased his value to the NFL draft. He eventually uh, was drafted into the NFL. He is still in the NFL for 15 years now. And most years, he is voted dirtiest player in the league by his colleagues. And, and and most famously, about seven or eight years ago, he bullied a fellow 300-pounder. Richie is 6'3", 300 pounds. So I, I never say this to his face. So, uh, <laughs> but he bullied, he bullied a, uh, another 6'3", 300-pounder named Jonathan Martin. 
Stanford graduate yet and an African-American under the guise of, you know, I'm going to toughen him up. But he, he managed to drive them out of the football and uh, into, you know, what seems to be a very depressive state. He, he is a bad boy. And I, I think that, and I, I think that there is something romantic to to head coaches about this ability to be beast masters and to control these bad boys. I mean, it, it kind of helps their own macho image if uh, you know you think that you're the only one who can uh, who can keep this enormous brutal energy tethered to your demands. You know, I, I think of uh, Trump and his recent, uh, you know, bromance with uh, special warfare warrior Eddie Gallagher. Yeah. Whose SEAL team teammates broke all kinds of, of their customary rules to accuse him of uh, war crimes. Uh, he was more or less quitted, and, and Trump kind of gathered him in restored his rank, he has since retired, invited him to Mar-a-Lago, and maybe in the Mar-a-Lago gift shop, they are selling uh, selling some of uh, Eddie Gallagher's Salty Frog gear. <laughs> oh, <great. laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of, you know, Nike for war criminals. I, I, I think this is, this is kind of that same sort of line, the idea of, uh, of brutality. Yeah, it's it's a brutal game. And I think that the attitudes of, of the some of the families in Marshall, Texas, uh, that their you know, twelve year olds will never have a shot at becoming real men unless they learn to take a hit. You don't you don't get the brain damage in the NFL. The brain damage begins back in peewee football with those constant little assaults to your skull. But they think it's worth the risk to become a man. And, of course, uh, if it's your only ticket out of Marshall, Texas, or any other place where you may feel trapped, often by the color of your skin, then maybe it's, maybe it's a good deal. But in any case, it's kind of a, a terrible way of looking at America. And you also say the big lie is a practice that football shares with Donald Trump. We know about Trump's lies, not just the thousands, but in particular the one about Ukraine that got him impeached. What do you consider the big lie in football? Well, the big lie in football is that uh, having your brain scrambled, one, you know, has nothing to do with football, and two, you can just shake it off. You know, in, in terms of Big lies, although probably you know, not not as far-reaching in its consequences as you know, climate denial or big tobacco telling us uh, that you know nicotine is good for us. Uh, is how many years the National Football League denied the fact that the brain damage caused by football was actually being caused by football to the extent of, um, you know, brushing aside any kind of you know, criticism or revelatory reporting and setting up, and when they did, you know, set up their own 
medical teams to look into it. They were invariably headed by, uh, you know, uh, obstetricians and dermatologists. You know, hardly, hardly the neurologists that you needed to see what was going on. So I, I think that that was a big lie in the sense that not only did it damage and kill another generation of professional football players, but certainly it began the murderous drumbeat on the heads of kids, peewee yeah. football players, Pop Warner football players. And, you know, it's not even we didn't know about it. I mean, my son, my son is uh, still angry at me that I wouldn't let him play high school football. Oh. And he's, he's 51, and, <laughs> you know, uh, he's 51 and a well-known novelist. And I keep saying, hey, yeah, you wouldn't have written any of those books if I let you play. But, you know, I, I, how did I know? But, and, you know, we all kind of knew. One, we knew that, you know, bones were in, uh, in bad repair. I had never interviewed a former football player who was able to step up from a soft chair easily. Uh. But it also stood to reason that all those helmet-to-helmet hits could not be good for your head. So, I mean, you, we were all in denial. The football players themselves were certainly in denial because they wanted to play this game, which had given them so much, you know, pleasure and status. The prestige of being a high school or college football player is enormous. And then, of course, the prestige and riches of a poor kid making it to the pros. And certainly fans were willing, you know, to be in denial for the pleasure that the game gave them. Well, to conclude here by returning to the Super Bowl, sports writers are told to stick to sports. This year's Super Bowl is on Fox, and I see that the pregame show includes a Sean Hannity interview with Trump. And this will, of course, happen during the impeachment trial in the Senate. I see that during the game, the Trump campaign will run a 60-second ad that costs $10 million. Also, Michael Bloomberg has purchased a 60-second ad. Probably that will be critical of Trump. And then there's also going to be a 30-second ad about police brutality against African-Americans. It's told through the eyes of a former NFL player whose cousin was shot and killed by a cop after his car broke down at the side of the road. That ad is being purchased by the NFL itself through something it calls the Inspire Change Initiative, which focuses on social justice issues. Of course, that ad makes you wonder why Colin Kaepernick was kicked out of the NFL for kneeling during the national anthem in order to bring awareness to that very issue. Uh, and one last thing, the San Francisco 49ers will be playing. That's Colin Kaepernick's former team. The last time they played in the Super Bowl, he was on the team. And Vice President Pence recently called them Nancy Pelosi's 49ers. My question, <laughs> my question for you is, if Kansas City beats San Francisco on Sunday, will that be good for Trump? Wow. <laughs> I, I, I think we... I think we can't start thinking that way because <laughs> okay. so then we'll then we'll feel too bad, right? <laughs> if the Forty ers win, I, I I don't think that we one can really saddle teams, you know, with those that kind of Faustian bargain of you know if you win, 
it'll be politically good. And two, I think it's so shrewd of the NFL to get on the better side of things because they are losing audience. Football is eroding among younger viewers and players. And I think that any kind of nod to anything progressive might bring back some of those fans or bring in some new young fans. So maybe, just maybe, that tells us the tide is shifting a little bit and it's a good thing. And yes, we will root for the Chiefs. <laughs> Robert Lipsight wrote about Trump and football for Tom Dispatch and The Nation. Bob, thank you. You are the best. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about the Border Patrol and their youth program called Border Patrol Explorers. For that, we turn to Morley Music. He's a freelance reporter based in Chicago who's written for the L.A. Review of Books, the Hyde Park Herald, and now The Nation. Morley Music, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. We're talking here about the Boy Scouts of the Border Patrol. Explorers is a program of the Boy Scouts for older kids, 14 to 18 years old. In my day, it was called Explorer Scouts. This is a program that focuses mostly on preparing boys for careers. And I learned from your amazing report in The Nation, that includes careers in the Border Patrol. Uh, what kind of kids are in the Explorers Border Patrol program, and what do they do? Well, the kids that are in it are kids that live in border communities, kids from Laredo, Douglas, Nogales, San Diego, Ajo. The kids that live in these border communities are primarily Hispanic. A lot of people move down there to be closer to their relatives in Mexico or because their parents were deported and you can you can live by, you know, say your your mom in one of these towns and just, you know, regularly commute to Mexico. How did you come across Border Patrol Explorers? I came across the Border Patrol Explorers while living in a small town called Ajo, Arizona. And I was down there in winter of 28, 2019, trying to understand border communities' response to the military deployment to the border. And for the most part, the military just kind of wasn't around. And one day I just started talking to some kids in the town, Central Plaza. They were chatting to each other in Spanish. And I, I just wanted to know, you know, what kids sort of thought about Trump's border politics and the kind of immigration that was that's constantly going around in their midst. And I was surprised to hear that the, these kids who are chatting in Spanish wanted to join the Border Patrol. And one of them told me, you know, I'm in this program called the Border Patrol Explorers. And I asked, you know, what is this? And he showed me a video on his phone firing what, what he claimed was an M4 rifle in a, in a green Border Patrol uniform. He's young, you know, 14-year-old, um, and, and body is like shaking from the recoil. And it was just, it was so striking to me that then I, I wanted to learn more about what the program was and, and what kids do in it. Ajo, Arizona, 
is not only a border patrol base, it's also the home of a famous activist. Tell us about him. Scott Warren lives there. Uh, He is an activist with the No More Deaths organization, which leaves water out in the desert for immigrants who who are crossing through. And he was put on trial last year. You know, the accusation was that he was basically assisting in in human smuggling, um, but basically he had just provided some basic first aid to immigrants as as part of his work with with No More Deaths. When you were in Ajo, Arizona, you talked to these high school boys who wanted to be in the Border Patrol Explorers and some of whom were. What did you learn from them about what they do when they are trained to be Border Patrol explorers? Well, the the main thing that I learned is that the training consists of a lot of role-playing exercises. So the, the way that it works is the Border Patrol agents in charge of the explorer posts tell them various scenarios. So they'll split the kids up and they'll say, okay, you guys are the illegals, you guys are the agents. And the scenario is that the group of you're a group of illegal immigrants running through the desert. Uh, you're trying to you know cover your tracks, and you need to go hide somewhere. And then the agents are going to follow your footprints and track you down and arrest you. And sometimes they'll tell them, "Okay, this is going to be a violent scenario. You know, you the immigrants this time are going to pull out a gun and." you know, the agents have to respond in time or say they're doing a high-risk vehicle stop scenario. So this is some some immigrants are driving along a highway and they're going to resist arrest and they're going to pull out a gun. And basically, they want the agents to learn how to sort of think on their feet and use either weapons or an air of authority they also teach them kind of negotiations. They want they want people to de- to de-escalate. They're, you know, not trying to shoot people. So they learn negotiation stuff, and then if if it goes wrong, they teach them you know how to like you know pull out a gun quickly. Are these uh, border patrol explorers fourteen to uh, eighteen years old? Are they taught anything about the law and the Constitution, due process, asylum rights, immigration law in general? Yes, they are taught all of that, at least according to the Border Patrol Explorer guidelines. But it was very hard for me to get specifics on that because I was never allowed to attend any of their trainings, despite many requests. So all, all I really know of the classroom portion is what some of the explorers could sort of remember and then what one of the agents and Mark Phillips, who r- runs a program, could tell me about it. And what did they tell you about as- what they're taught about asylum and immigration law in general? Well, the the sort of clearest discussion I had, honestly, the, the explorers I spoke to were very sort of hand wavy. Um, gave very general kind of. They just they said the themes. You know, we learned asylum law, um, but uh, what Agent Phillips provided as a concrete example of what, what the kids learn is, is the distinction between defensive and affirmative asylum processes. Remind us what that is. So a, a defensive asylum claim is one that a migrant makes in order to avoid being deported 
after they've been charged for a crime. And the important thing to remember about that is that it's you will be charged for a crime for trying to cross the border. So if you're caught crossing the border without documents and then you want to claim asylum, you will have to do it in a, as, as a defensive asylum claim. Whereas an affirmative asylum claim is made from someone's home country when they have not been threatened with deportation and are not facing a criminal charge. And the way that Agent Phillips explained this distinction to me, he asked me the same question that he asks his explorers, which is, should these two kinds of claimers be uh, treated the same? Should criminals and non-criminals be treated the same? And I, I sort of tried to raise this objection of, uh, well, I think that that question might be misleading because people who have crossed illegally are, are treated as criminals. But he said, you know, he kind of interrupted and said that the difference between these two kinds of claimings is, is that of between a convicted child rapist and a politically persecuted individual who, who doesn't want to return to their, to their dictatorship. Wow. Um, it, it, it partakes in the same sort of misleading rhetoric that Trump uses to justify existing migration policy. Now, I understand that part of your reporting for the nation on this involved quite an extensive effort to get documents on Border Patrol explorers. Tell us how that went. Well, I first requested the documents through various Border Patrol press offices, and I wasn't really getting answers. So I sent in uh, Freedom of Information Act requests asking for the Border Patrol Explorers guidelines, how the program is managed, um, what the sort of hierarchy of it is, when it was founded, how many kids are in it, that sort of thing. And after several months, I, I got those documents and that partially informed the reporting. And last question, who pays for this? Is this a taxpayer-funded uh, program? Um, it is not a taxpayer-funded program. Each post fundraises for itself and pays for the uniforms and the outings and the kind of the more fun things that they do, usually with bake sales. But I also talked to an explorer who raised funds for, their, for his camping trip by selling uh, the, the spent bullet casings from one of their firearms training sessions. Morley Music, his report, Meet the Boy Scouts of the Border Patrol, is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. You can read it at thenation.com. Morley Music, thanks for doing this work and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. I appreciate your time. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. 
For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.